One, two, three, four. You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Jeff Mulgan. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I was, as a teenager, very much an activist, as a political activist on all sorts of things from anti-racism to, I have a PhD in telecommunications, so I got into sort of networks of the internet and stuff. And then I've essentially spent half my time working kind of top down in governments with all the both strengths and weaknesses of seeing the world top down through the eyes of a government and half the time bottom up with communities or social enterprises or startups. And I guess to come back to your question through all of that, I've tried to see how can you combine the spark of creativity, of imagination, of not accepting things as they are, but to try and combine that with practical skills, practical methods, because imagination without practicality is sort of fun, but pretty useless. And practicality without imagination gets you stuck in the vices of the present. So yeah, that's what I got to where I am today, I suppose. A lot of young people could sort of get down, not realizing how to activate their dreams and ambitions. And you discuss imagination is freedom. Could you tell us about the distinction between thin and thick freedoms? Now, what you asked about so thick and thin in relation to imagination, in a way, this is kind of the, the key thing for my book. I think often we need some spark of an idea which makes you look at the world in a slightly different way. I go back to the 15th century where one of the first feminist utopias was written. And there, even the idea of, you know, equality between men and women was a very unusual, very minority uh, view. And the same is true of the utopias, feminist utopias written in the 16th and 17th and even 18th centuries. But then over the last, you know, 200 years, we've learned how to create new laws. We've learned uh, a whole sort of culture around feminism, a new way of looking at the world, relationships, etc. And so that what starts off as quite a thin imagination has become thick. It's become, you know, very strong, very embedded in institutions and worldviews and practices and battles, even if some of those battles still have a way to go. Yeah, so I think this is a, I hope, a big shift in how governments think about their roles, but also actually NGOs and companies too. So I think in the past, governments only did things to people, often quite nasty things like locking them up, taking taxes from them, policing them. Then as democracy became more normal, at least in some of the world, they became better at doing things for people, providing them with uh, welfare payments or providing them with universal education or roads or hospitals. But I think the next stage of democracy is when alongside some things which have to be done to or for people, as you say, much more of government is done with people, giving them a say over how things are done and what they're done. But I guess in relation to both schools and universities, one of the things I've been trying to work on is how alongside getting the basics right, and a school system does have to produce kids who are literate and numerate, 
uh, understand science. I'm in an engineering department now, so, you know, I care about these things. I think they can also provide space for very different ways of thinking. And some of the models which have really interested me and I've been involved in are ones where alongside the classic curriculum, you spend time in groups working on real life problem solving, often outside the school and often with people outside the school. It, it, it sparks a, a, a useful conversation. And for universities too, I believe in going beyond just the capstone projects to being much more embedded in the communities around them and helping those communities to solve uh, solve their own problems. In chapter 11 of your book, Another World is Possible, you write on the future's importance in, quote, dominating the present. So what role does the youth, as you explain, play in holding the reins of progress? Well, in a way, it's kind of obvious. I mean, you will be around much longer than me, hopefully. But equally, I don't think I'd like to live in a world entirely run by young people. For me, the key in almost any of these ex these kind of things is how do you get the right mix? I think we need to, you know, remobilize young people, perhaps to switch a little bit more off uh, TikTok and stuff like that, and, and in a way fight against this time compression, which social media have been so effective at, where you know everything is reduced to 140 characters or whatever, or a, you know 15 seconds on Twitter to actually realize that the generation who are young today will be the longest lived generation in human history and need to start thinking like that, need a complete sort of shift of mindset. Well, I think we all have to learn different kinds of diet. So I think we all know what a diet means in food, that you are shaped by what you eat. And if you eat lousy stuff, you'll be unhealthy, you won't live as long. I'm a great believer in digital technology. I think it does wonderful things for us, but I also think we need diets with digital. I, I guess we do need to cultivate a different kind of diet, a different kind of dietetics, uh, which helps us use the things which are useful for us, but not be dominated in a way. We haven't quite found the right ways of harnessing them to our needs rather than letting them dominate us and manipulate us. Our societies are aging pretty fast on that. What's absolutely clear is that our institutions are not well designed for almost any of those tasks. They were designed often 50 years ago, 100, 200 years ago. But your democratic system was basically designed nearly 300 years ago. And it's not surprising they're, they're not fit for purpose. That's almost the single most important thing I think universities have to do in the next 10 or 20 years is help us plan these massive transitions, but in ways which leave enough openness for experiment, for adaptation, for different places coming up with different, uh, solutions. So I, I wrote a book about this about 10 years ago, which originated with writing a piece called after capitalism. And I was very struck how many highly educated people literally couldn't picture a world after capitalism. They kind of assumed it was part of nature. And I pointed out they were exactly like people 250 years ago who thought monarchy was absolutely part of nature, was eternal. There was no way we could ever, you know, no society could work without a king or an emperor. And now, of course, that looks comic to see the world that way. But the way it changed isn't just through revolutions where you suddenly overthrow monarchy and get democracy or you overthrow capitalism and suddenly you're in socialism. 
much more often change happens in more, more organic ways as the new forms take shape and grow and the old ones wane. So like in my country, Britain, we, we still have a queen, but steadily monarchy has become less and less powerful, less and less influential as we've grown up, you know, democracy, parliament, parties, all the, all the alternatives. And my vision of the future of capitalism and after capitalism is all the alternative ways of running things, which may be in a social economy, maybe in mutuals, maybe in co-ops, maybe in some of the, you know, maybe DAOs, new, new technology-based ways of organizing food, energy, our mobility, our education, that these over time grow and they squeeze out as it were the, the pure capitalist, uh, a part of capitalism where capital is all powerful and everything else serves capital and, and leave us with something different. And weirdly, again, the tech companies in some ways got a useful model. So in the past, it was kind of assumed that finance capital was the top of the hierarchy in capitalism. That was part of the model. But you look at what are the, the 10 biggest companies on the planet today, nine of them are based on data and knowledge. The banks have actually slipped way down the list, become much less powerful in some respects relative to the big digital giants. And of course, the digital giants are all organized in very traditional capitalist ways with stock prices and so on. But they are a reminder how fluid to some extent all of these systems are. What looks like an absolutely fixed hierarchy can change, can be over, overturned. And my hope is that again, in a, in a complex, messy way, we build up the alternatives, which give more space for human dignity and the planet and so on. But we, but don't expect a sort of that on, you know, July the 23rd, there'll be a revolution and suddenly we'll move from one system to another. That doesn't work well. It's never worked well to have very, very brutal ruptures between one system and another, but what can work well and has again and again is this was organic motion, which squeezes a sort of pure capitalism to the margins, just as has happened to monarchy and an empire in the last 200 years. As you think about the future, education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? So I would like them to feel agency above all, that they actually do have some power and some responsibility to shape the world, not just be an observer. I think reading history helps you get that. And it's kind of important to have a sense of the past and how we got here, because usually that is, you know, it can be depressing, but it can be empowering. And in a way that it's for each generation to ask that question, what from the present do we want to take forward into the future? And I think if we could do that, you know, we actually live happier lives. If we have that sense of, of our, our embeddedness in time in that sense. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.